The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I speak to Kevin Hiscock, Professor of Environmental Sciences at the University of East Anglia. He tells me what we should be doing to protect the UK's water resources from future droughts. There's been lots of reports in the news recently that this is one of the driest years on record for, for some decades now. And I think certain parts of the country are, have gone for around 150 days without seeing any rainfall. Um, so this has led a lot of people to say the UK may be heading for a drought. So people use this term a lot, but um, is there a strict scientific definition of exactly what we mean by a drought? No, there isn't actually a, a strict definition. Um, you can think in terms of a meteorological drought, in terms of a deficit of rainfall, like we see in the last few months. Um, agricultural drought, particularly if that um, dry weather is at the same time as the irrigation season in the summer. Or I also think in terms of hydrological drought, and they're perhaps the worst in respect of maintaining the water supply for both our drinking water, but also to to support the environment. But they develop over a longer period than several weeks of no rainfall. But the recent period, we've seen months of lower rainfall than than usual. So one dry spring leading into another dry autumn winter uh, makes the problem worse. So next year, we could see more of an issue if we don't actually get some rainfall over the critical winter period, the recharge period, as we think about in hydrology. And also, I think that how severe the drought depends on where you are uh, geographically. So when I think back to 76, the drought then was mainly in the north and the west, where there's very little in the way of groundwater to support supply or river base flow. So that was particularly severe then. 
Um, but this year, we're seeing dry weather everywhere. So even where we do have groundwater resources in the east and in the south, in the chalk aquifer, even those are stressed. So it depends a bit on the geology, the weather pattern, and the longevity of that dry period. But certainly now we're, we're finding that the drought is developing. Yeah, so you mentioned there groundwater. So I think um, before we get into the, the sort of the more sort of nitty gritty of these things, so could you give us a brief overview of how water moves through a landscape, where it's stored and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, typically river flow, particularly in the east and the south where we do have extensive aquifers, much of that river flow is groundwater, perhaps 75% or more. So the rainfall infiltrates the soil zone and then slowly moves down to the water table. And then gradually that water will move towards the discharge area, which is the the river, or it could be a wetland, for example. So a, a surface water dependent system, dependent on the groundwater. So much of eastern and southern England is underlain by the chalk. And that chalk is a huge reservoir of water. I mean, one third of the drinking supply in England will be from the chalk aquifer. So one of the first steps a water company can do in a period of low rainfall is to switch some of its supply, if it has groundwater, to take more groundwater. It's a very typical response to turn to groundwater in a drought, which in itself, over a long period, can be an impact on the on the groundwater. But essentially, we've got this, this large water cycle, rainfall, infiltration, groundwater discharge, into the river and then down to the estuary, back out to sea to connect up to the the water cycle. But groundwater is really important for our river flow and for our public supply in the south of England. So what is the situation with with sort of UK water resource management at the moment? You know, how well or how poorly are they being managed? Well, all water companies do go through a five-year planning cycle, the so-called AMP period, the asset management period cycle and they should be looking at their longer term projections for demand that will take into account population increase as well as um, climate change um, factors so they should be building in what they call headroom into their forecasts but when you look at you know you look at the eastern region there the forecast is is, an increasing population an increased drought climate and so insufficient water is available in the longer term so you've got to plan to build storage into the system so in the anglian region for example presently there's a discussion of building one if not two new surface reservoirs with which to to fill the the reservoir during the winter when there's an excess of water to then have it available in the summer so we do need to build headroom and depends on the nature again of your your geography, whether you have groundwater resources that you can use, whether you're entirely dependent on surface reservoirs, like you may be more in the west of the country, in the north of the country. You can also move um, resources around in a region. That's another way. So, for example, in the wetter northern part of Britain, you could divert water southwards, which we see presently with a big pipeline being built from Humberside down through to Essex at this time to try and redistribute the, the resource. So in the east and the south, with, with growing population pressure and climate change scenarios, we do need to think about how to build more, more storage. We also have, I feel, uh, an historical 
legacy of where we've placed our sewage treatment works, the larger works, typically are at the bottom end of the catchment. And that relates back to the 19th century when our rivers were very contaminated with sewage. And the idea of just getting that sewage out to sea as quickly as possible was what was uh, you know, the, the need at that time. But of course, that sewage water is highly treated. And we can see it as water recycling, if, if you wish. But we then put it into the estuary and we lose it out to sea. So one thing we could do is move our sewage outfalls further back up the, the catchment so as to be able to use that water again. And the public sometimes find that distasteful, the idea of having water that's been recycled through the human gut. But it's not, the, it's not unusual between Oxford and Teddington on the Thames, that water is re reused seven times. So essentially it's abstracted, recycled through the sewage works and back into the river. So it's not a new concept. But historically, a lot of our sewage works are at the bottom end of catchments. And so we lose that recycled water going, going out to sea. So we could reposition those, those outfalls. And that has happened in one or two cases, but it could be part of a strategy to build a bit more resilience into the water supply system. But yes, water companies are, are required to make these plans. And these plans are then uh, looked at by Ofwat, the government regulator, and then Ofwat determine whether or not the plans are affordable for the public in respect of how big our water bills would need, need to be to uh, increase that um, resilience through building infrastructure. So there's a, a need to control the price of water, that we, the price that we pay for water. So the water companies make a bid to Ofwat to build a system to build in that resilience, but whether it's affordable is determined by Ofwat uh, that then determine how much our water bills can go up. So like uh, people often talk in, in situations like this about hose pipe bans and people get annoyed that their lawns are going brown or they can't water their roses. But there are more significant impacts than this, aren't they? Like specifically on agriculture. Yes, agriculture and the environment. I mean, yes, uh, reduced um, yeah, food yield. So that's not good, obviously. Uh, we're seeing now, aren't we, crops that are just dying in the fields. Uh, peas, for example, I've noticed. Uh, some farmers are still continuing to irrigate. So they are able to do that presently. So that helps protect the, the potato crop. Uh, the Environment Agency do have the power to stop farmers from irrigating so-called section 57 of the water act that is when the farmers particularly get upset when they you know spend a lot of money on info well irrigation equipment and then being told to, to not use that equipment but this um uh, summer period uh, farmers have been able to continue irrigating we're towards the end of the season now so that's been quite good but when i think back to the um drought of 89 through to 92 in the Anglian region, then there was a ban on irrigation, uh, and the farmers were very unhappy with that. And so you get this classic conflict of interest between the need to protect the water for public supply and the need for water for irrigation. And also, you had to leave some water in the catchment, in the water balance, to maintain the river flow and so protect the environment. But even that can be... Um, mined into, uh, if I can use the word mining of a water resource, so under drought orders in, the, in, in worse situations, which we've seen in the past, uh, water companies can take more water from a river or from an aquifer, more than they're entitled to do under their license. 
and the government would have to decide upon those drought permits because by taking more water from the ground or the river, you're ultimately going to damage the, the aquatic environment. But that drought order step we haven't got to yet in this current drought. We've got as far as bans on, on host pipes and sprinklers, so-called temporary use bans, but we're a couple of steps away yet from drought orders, which we have seen in the past. So in some ways, to get things into perspective, this drought is developing, but hasn't got to a point yet where it could be even worse. This is why at the beginning I was saying a dry winter following this period would be a much more serious situation for next year. But at, at present, certainly wildlife is suffering. The low flow in the rivers, I mean, it doesn't look very good. It's um, warmer temperatures reduce the oxygen content, so that stress for fish. Uh, there are fewer deeper pools of cooler water for the fish to find refuge. We also see a lack of dilution of chemicals uh, in the river. So you're seeing a lot more in the way of algal growth on the surface of the river. So this is just uh, another problem, which is, of course, diffuse runoff of agricultural contaminants like fertilizers, sewage inputs, all those nutrients that cause algal growth, which um, with warmer temperature, also grow more quickly. So we're seeing stress um, indirectly through warmer temperature, lower flows, and these pollution sources creating the, the algal eutrophication situation, which also reduces the oxygen content. So it's not a good picture out there at the moment because of the lack of rainfall affecting the, the water in the river. But in terms of the, the water balance, the hydrology, then the situation is not so bad yet as to require drought permits or drought orders. A drought permit is where you can take more water from a river than you're allowed to do under your licence. So we mentioned earlier there's some possible sort of infrastructure-based solutions, such as um, these pipelines running up and down the country and placing the sewage works in a, in a position where we can recycle the water. What about other sort of land management solutions like planting woodlands? You know, Could, could that help? I think that's a, a, a good point. Yes, planting woodland, uh, introducing beavers into the landscape. They're very effective water engineers. Also ways, ways of um, cultivating the, the, the ground to create a more um, textured soil so that infiltration occurs more easily. So you find that with approaches like regenerative farming or, let's say, minimum tillage approaches, to avoid ploughing of the soil, uh, which upsets the soil structure. If we can help build the soil structure, increase the organic content in that soil, it becomes more fibrous and is able to, to like a sponge, withhold the water and also allow infiltration to occur. And conversely, to avoid flood runoff suddenly in a, in a storm. And so you lose that water rapidly into the river system, when in fact it would be beneficial to allow that infiltration to occur to the water table and so maintain that large groundwater store that is so important for supporting the, the river environment. So, yeah, we can change or in increase those sorts of approaches to cultivation to uh, enhance infiltration. Building, uh, well, yeah, building or planting woodland certainly does help um, slow down the flow and therefore you don't lose the runoff quite so quickly into the river channels so like that again like a big sponge in the riparian zone so anything that slows the flow like that and allows infiltration more chance to occur is beneficial of course 
And I think that through, that's, that's a good thing to do because it avoids rapid runoff and loss um, out to sea quickly. But if we have no rainfall, there'll be no infiltration. But where we do have some rainfall, we can maximise the infiltration. That's all, all to the good. And then I also think that um, we can extend those ideas into the built environment. So when you think about the amount of concrete and tarmac in urban areas and how quickly, say, a summer storm, you see flooding in the urban area in a heavy thunderstorm in the summer, and then it all runs away quickly into the drainage system and again into the river and lost out to sea. If we can increase the, the amount of green space in the, in, the, in the city area, so what we call sustainable urban drainage systems or SUDs. So SUDs are... Things like um, ponds or wetlands within a new housing development, there might be a pond in the centre of the development where the drainage from the roofing and the driveways goes into and then can seep again into the, down to the water table. So uh, greening up our urban space, thinking in terms of these sustainable drainage systems, another good way of holding that water in the, in the catchment. I think the Chinese have a a term for this. And I think they call this approach sponge cities. So if we can have more sponge cities, I think that would be all to the good. Uh, so we need to be able to influence our construction industry to think about building those those uh, drainage systems into new, into new builds and indeed in new buildings, uh, installing more water-efficient uh, appliances and so increasing water efficiency in our own homes, which is the other big area that we should perhaps discuss, our behaviour towards our, our water usage. I mean, there are differences when you look globally. Um, the US, for example, per person per day is on the order of 600, well, perhaps 500 to 600 litres per person per day. is quite high use, if not profligate use of water. Uh, in the UK, it's about 140 litres per person per day. But we're not the best in Europe. In Germany, they achieve 120 litres per person per day. So our behaviour is a little different to the uh, German population. They, they are more efficient and they use their water perhaps a bit more wisely, maybe. We have a bit of a disconnect always in this um, country, in the UK. If you ask someone on the street, you know, where does your water come from? They don't think about the river or the groundwater. They will say it comes out of the tap, which just shows there's an expected service that they um, pay for and, and require but of course that water has to come from somewhere so if we can improve understanding of where that water comes from and in a drought of course people do wake up to the fact that a water shortage is beginning to affect our uh, supply but normally people don't give that quite so much thought and therefore they don't tend to change their behavior as much so i think water metering can be a way of uh, assisting that education of people as to how they use their their water it's, i mean in some regions there is high water metering but in some regions uh, less so so continuing work to install water meters may help to uh, change our behavior a little yeah that was that's very similar to something that i was going to ask like is there any sort of so we mentioned the big infrastructure things the, the pipelines the the forests the wetland management and that sort of thing but is there any advice that you could give to our readers and listeners and how they can help the situation? Yeah, I think we all um, uh, help. Um, so, yes, I mean, at this time, not using a hose pipe or a sprinkler is terribly inconvenient. I know for those that are keen gardeners, like myself, for example, having to walk around the garden with endless 
watering cans. Um, so yes, we can reduce our use in that way. Um, putting on the, the dishwasher or the washing machine when it's full, um, reduce our use of, of those appliances. Just, well, when we have water, of course, it's great to be able to capture that water to harvest it uh, in a water butt, say. So you can use that water butt for um, watering the garden during a dry spell. Although my three water butts are all, are all now empty because of this long dry spells. But in an ordinary year, a water butt can help um, reduce your your use of tap water to water the garden. So rain water harvesting, I mean, others go as far as saying you could try and um, uh, siphon off the bath water and use that for grey water in the garden. But you could say perhaps take a shower and not have a bath in the first place. So taking showers, yeah, using the washing machine less, uh, harvesting the water where you can. These are, these are all steps that we can take. But ultimately, in the longer term, then buying those water efficient appliances. I mean, I'm amazed to see that we never have a, a label on, say, a washing machine telling us how water efficient it is. There's an energy efficiency label. And I know the government, under its plans, uh, wants to see more widespread adoption of uh, using water efficiency labels, if not mandatory uh, labeling of uh, equipment. So, that, yeah, and also leakage on our own properties. If your water meter continues to turn, then there's an issue uh, with some form of leakage on your side of the uh, the water network. So that's another area we often criticize water companies not doing enough to stem water leakage, but often it can be a problem on the customer side and water companies should do more to encourage homeowners to, to look at that that problem. So leakage is a difficult thing to overnight cure. I know there's pressure now and people link that to the performance of water companies. They do have plans. Honestly, uh, if you try and dig up all the, the water pipes in one go, you're going to disrupt uh, a lot of people in terms of digging up all the roads. So it's an ongoing process of trying to reduce leakage but yeah leakage is another area that we can work at clearly to reduce uh, loss of that water at raw supply which um, will i think become less uh, in supply in terms of climate change scenarios when we think ahead into the future uh, periods like this will become more frequent this is the best uh, that we can see from the climate modeling scenarios even though there's uncertainty around predicting particularly um, summer rainfall totals it's difficult to make those predictions and then if you try and use those predictions to then drive a hydrological model those models themselves have uncertainty so you see this cascade of uncertainty through the climate modeling into the hydrological modeling but our best estimates these scenarios that are for the future climate do suggest in the south and east of england uh, increasing summer drought frequency and more intense drought and indeed over wider areas. But that's not for the whole of the UK. As you go towards the, the northern part of the UK, the scenario there is for normal or, or wetter uh, conditions, so not quite the severity that we might expect in terms of droughts in the future. And the other characteristic that I always notice in terms of climate scenarios from a hydrological perspective, is that all-important winter rainfall, when we need the recharge to occur, to top up our aquifers that support our rivers, which we then take water from for our supply, that all-important winter recharge will occur on fewer days. 
So the winters will become wetter, but the rainfall will be on fewer days. So we'll see a uh, an increased flood risk, but also that short period, that, that runoff, it, it occurs as a flood. We've got to capture that, to, to, to store that, uh, to then also uh, get through the following, what will be a longer, drier summer period. So the, the, it's, it's not, it's the, the intensity will change, the number of rain days will change as well. So the, dr- so the southern areas will get drier and the northern areas will get uh, a little wetter. That's the, the general pattern. So a slight increase in the gradient between dry and wet from south to north. So that winter storage is all important if we're going to get through those longer summers in the future. So what do you think the picture's going to be then for the for the coming years? You know, are you, are you optimistic that we'll be able to, to deal with this if we if we act properly? Well, we're back to those um, uh, forecasts for the future. The uh, water companies undertake, they typically look out 25 years into the future beyond which it becomes even less certain as to what the scenario will be. So yes, we are planning for drier uh, summer periods and increased population. Uh, so, well, particularly in the east of the, of the country, there's a growing population there. And we're not going to get through that unless we do have this increased storage. So returning to that idea of building infrastructure uh, to store water and reservoirs. That's very contentious, of course, because that reservoir is a large area and um, it means there will be displacement of some activities due to the drowning out of that, that land. But when we've talked about new reservoirs for as long as I've been a hydrologist, decades in other words, plans for a, a reservoir in South Oxfordshire, a plan for a reservoir out in the Fens in East Anglia, uh, they've been talked about for a number of years, but they may well have to become a reality if we're going to be able to cope with future dry summer periods, you know, given the need to store water. Um, another thing that um, we can do is actually directly recharge aquifers. So in some parts of the world, the idea of recharging the ground with water, so-called managed aquifer recharge, is quite a common technology. We don't do that much in this country. There's a small-scale pilot presently near Felixstowe in the sands and the gravels there in the crag aquifer. The idea there is to store water in the ground, which, of course, has less of a visual impact um, by storing the water in the ground and then pumping it out in the summer for irrigation purposes. That part of uh, East Anglia is well known for its sandy soils, very good for growing asparagus. So we can develop managed aquifer recharge. The biggest example we have in this country presently is the North London scheme. So there's an artificial recharge scheme in North London in the River Lee Valley. So in the wintertime, Thames Water can pump treated tap water, which is in excess at that time, from the mains into the ground, uh, into the chalk boreholes. And the water fills up the chalk and the overlying sands uh, and then in the summer, during a drought, they can then pump those boreholes and tap into that store that they have um, built up during the, the winter. They last used that scheme back in the mid-1990s. Whether they will need to use that uh, soon, I, I don't know for sure, but they certainly have the ability to store water underground, what we would call managed aquifer um, recharge, and then recover that during the dry period. So that, that's attractive because it has less of a surface impact compared with a surface 
reservoir. It's quite common around the world, but not so common here, partly because of our geology, once again. In many parts of the world, the aquifers are gravels, sands, silts, but here we typically have sandstones and limestones, which are not so easy to um, develop. They're, you know, they're hard rocks and they're very thick, um, so not quite so straightforward. Yeah, so that's covered all the questions that I had then, unless there's anything um, important that you think we've missed that you'd like to add. No, I think we've covered a great deal there, actually. Um, so, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to, to tell you all about what is not necessarily a straightforward situation when there's a drought. Yes, there's a drought, but will it be a hydrological drought, which will then really affect our water supply? Um, the reason you're seeing host pipe bands in the south of England is because on the south coast, the chalk water level is very low at the moment. So clearly there's a, an issue there and that they depend on that chalk a lot. So they've got to conserve that um, that storage. So yeah, we'll see how it develops in the next few months. But I'm just hoping that as in 2012, the drought will come to a sudden end and we'll get you know copious rainfall. As happened in 1976, come the autumn, it just didn't stop raining and then the whole problem went away. But it's not going away now with climate change. We can expect situation more in the future so we have to build that resilience thank you for listening to this episode of instant genius that was professor kevin hiscock the current issue of bbc science focus magazine is out now pick up a copy in stores or visit sciencefocus.com